can have a seat. We're going to pick up right there, right where Miss Jana left off. And uh, I was really late in getting that passage to her, and I sent it to her this morning, and she's like, great. At least that passage doesn't have a bunch of crazy words in it she has to pronounce. So the hardest word she had was, I think, Gennesaret. So she likes me today. That's the only reason she thanked God for her pastor today. <laughs> she likes me today. Next week, probably not so much. All right. We're going to be in Jenna. And Jenna we're going to start over. I'm going to sit down and get back up. Okay, Mark. We're going to be in Mark, I swear. Mark chapter 7. We're actually wrapping up the first half of the gospel of Mark today. We broke the book of Mark into two halves. The first half, asking the question, who is Jesus? And then the second half, we're going to look at what is the gospel. And so who is Jesus as he introduces himself to the world, as he leans into his three years of vocational ministry? The book pivots in the middle as he starts to set himself toward Jerusalem, where he will eventually go to the cross. And so we will kind of take today, we're going to answer our sixth question on who is Jesus, and then we're going to move towards what is the gospel. What does it mean for us? When we think gospel, by the way, we don't think of the thing that introduces us to Jesus, but the very power that keeps us in Jesus. Uh, Pastor Stephen said something a little bit earlier, it was in between songs, and he said something to the effect of Jesus setting us apart to be holy. And as he did that, it, it fits today's message so well that Jesus is the one that sets us apart to be holy. It's his work. It's his, it, it's his accomplishment of the gospel. It's his spirit in us that makes us holy. Super important for what we're going to talk about today. But I want to give you a starting idea. So here's a main idea today. Jesus, the truth of God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the truth of God. So every culture community, and church have embedded ways of doing things. Jesus confronts our traditions because he is the truth of God in human flesh. So all of us, bar none, have embedded ways of doing things, right? We have traditions, biases, cultural practices. In the church, that's true also. Why did we begin with kind of a call to worship? Why do we do three songs and then a message and then three songs? So why do we do things the way we do them? We have a way of doing things. That doesn't mean that if the church down the street does all their worship up front or all their worship in the back, doesn't make that wrong, right? We have embedded ways of doing things. Now, the question is, are those embedded ways of doing things in line with what God calls us to? That becomes our question, right? Not how does the church down the street do it or not how have we always done it? But what does God lead us to do? And where there's Flexibility, how many songs you do up front or back, how many songs you do in general. Where there's flexibility, we need to lean into what works for us, right? I want to give you this. So John, 1, uh, John 14 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what Jesus says in the definite article, the, I am the way, not a way, right? I am the truth, not one truth, right? And, and the life, right? not live your best life, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the very truth of God in human flesh. He is truth. And so when he measures our traditions, when he measures our practices by truth, he does so from a position of authority because he is the truth. He is the very truth of God in human flesh. 
So Mark chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 1. It's the very next verse right after where Jana left off. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So here's where we begin. Jesus lives inside of a culture, 2,000 years ago, inside of a culture around Judaism. But Judaism exists in, in, in places, some primarily Jewish, some primarily non-Jewish, but Jews have been dispersed there and still live there. Today, we're going to be in one of those places where there are few Jews and many non-Jews. And, and the Jews have these practices of washing. Now, long ago, 2,000 years ago, long before we were talking about hand sanitizer and pandemics, right? Okay, different context. So they would wash their hands. You're like, okay, listen, I always tell the kids, go wash your hands, get ready for dinner. Okay, good practice, right? We do that for germs. We don't do that for our faith. That doesn't make us more holy. It makes us less dirty, right? They're doing it as a way of being ritually pure, ritually clean. We're going to use the word holy today. It's the best tie to what we understand. So they have this practice of washing before they eat. They also have this practice when they come home from the marketplace, they wash more generally. What they're doing is trying to wash the world off of them, okay? So they're not trying to wash germs that they, can, that they got in the world. They're trying to wash the actual world off of them in a way of seeing themselves as more holy when unstained by the world. Now, there's a spiritual metaphor we could use there that we are more holy when we are unstained by the world. But that's not what they're doing. They're literally trying to wash the world off of them. So they would come home from the marketplace where they were mixing with other people, people maybe less holy than them, and they would come home and they'd want to wash that off. And so they had lots of ritual practices. We're told by Mark, by our author here, about three of them, washing their hands before they eat, washing after the marketplace, and the way they would wash the things in their home, vessel, things like pots and pans, even their couches. But here's what I want you to hear. They're trying to wash the world away. They're trying to remove the cultural dirtiness, the cultural impurity that they've been exposed to by living in the world. That's what they're trying to do. And so they have questions about how Jesus practices this. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So defiled is this stained by the world. Their question, why do your disciples not hold to the traditions of the elders, right? This is about Judaism being separatists, right? When we talk about separatists today, we tend to talk about racial groups or ethnic groups that, that want to live separate from, and it's very, very similar the, Judaism 2,000 years ago had this separatist approach, so they would prefer to live just amongst themselves. But whenever they got out beyond that, then they had practices of kind of washing the world away in a, in a way that would kind of make them feel like they were holier because they were not kind of impure because of the world, right? And so 
they have these traditions. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Being separate from the world. Jews viewed outsiders as impure, so they lived separate from them. Jesus cleansed or purified people, causing them to draw nearer to God. Be holy. Now, Jesus cleanses people. You, me, them, right? Apart from their ethnicity, apart from even their religious sect, when Jesus engages a person, it's what Jesus does. Tie back to kind of what Pastor Stephen said earlier, that Jesus sets us apart to be holy, something to that effect, right? That by the work that Jesus has accomplished, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, those things, those are what cause us to be either holy or unholy. In him, we get holiness from him. In him, we get his, he pays our debt for our sin, right? He, re he reconnects us to God the Father, the very connection that was lost by sin, making us holy. Holy means set apart. So set apart for what? Set apart for what Jesus calls us to do. They understood the set apart part. They understood the separate part, but they missed the mission part. So the reason we started with a passage that Jenna just read to us is Jesus has been in this area outside the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities, outside Gennesaret, outside of Galilee. He's been all over this place, and what he keeps doing is kind of, he's zigzagging in and out of territories that are either primarily Jewish or primarily non-Jewish. Today, he's going to be in a primarily non-Jewish area. And so in areas like this, those that were faithful Jews held to the traditions of the elders of being very separate from the world that they lived in. So we do that today. We do that in a lot of ways, trying to be separate from the world. There's some good ways, some bad ways. We'll kind of press into some of them. And they're hot-button topics sometimes. Sometimes they're viewed as political topics. How do we remove ourselves from the world in order to be holy, rather than view ourselves as holy because of Jesus, able to go out into the world like Jesus and maybe bring that holiness, that righteousness to the world? You see the difference? So they would abstain. They would separate. Jesus would press in. Verse 6, and he said to them, meaning Jesus, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. So he says, listen, you honor God with your words only. Your heart is far away from God. And you're changing what God has said. In fact, you're making traditions, you're making practices, things that you're teaching others to do, that you're passing on generation after generation, traditions that are actually in conflict with what God has called you to do. You're not just off track, but you're making traditions that run contrary, and you're calling other people to do that. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. Now, that word tradition can be used in a positive sense or a negative sense. In this sense, he's saying you've built practices that are contrary to what God has called you to. So that'd be a negative. Now, I'm going to give you both. So first, here's a note for you. Every church culture has traditions. You can't escape bringing traditions to our faith and our church, but it's incumbent upon churches and Christians to examine them 
through the lens of Scripture. We can't help but bring cultural traditions and practices to church. Every time we get together, when we get together again, if we do the same thing, we begin to build a habit. Those habits turn into traditions. Those traditions, are they in line with what God has called us to? It is incumbent upon Christianity, us, you, me, especially me as a pastor, our elders, to ask, is what we're doing drawing people to God, or is it running contrary to God? Because it can subtly start to pull you away. Here's this passage that Paul writes to, second, to the church in Thessalonica. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So in this case, traditions are a positive thing. Hey, listen, we gave you good biblical practices, traditions. Stick with those, right? But in another case, we do always have to, be, we have to ask the question, do the things that we do, do the traditions that we hold to, do the things that we pass on as truth to the next generation, are they in line with what God has said? Or are they somehow subtly shifting and getting us off track? For those of you who know me for a while, uh, one of the things I, I've planted churches, we started churches and then restarted churches that were dying. And two of them, uh, two of them, and I've coached others that have done some of that. And in every case, there is always this conversation that comes up, well, that's not how we've always done it, right? Now, we would poke fun at that, but we all are like that, right? Like we all have that ingrained in us. We like things the way we like things. We do things the way we like to. We typically do a lot of the things we like to do. But sometimes those things change over time. I use the example of, as many of you know, El Dorado was, was planted in a drive-in movie theater. Again, if you don't know what that is, Google it, right? So <laughs> if I had, yeah, there you go. We'll explain later, Alex. So, uh, you know, um, tell them what it is, Abby, tell them. All right, so anyhow. If I had a bunch of money wanted to invest in a business, I wouldn't go out and buy 10 acres and put up these gigantic white screens and then pave the road like our parking lot, right? I wouldn't pave with... <laughs> if you've been to a drive-in, that's funny. Anyhow, either way, so you can get on that thing and just get the right angle, put those little speakers. The reason I wouldn't do that is because we have on-demand movies and I can watch them in the comfort of my own home. That doesn't mean movies are bad or good. It doesn't even mean drive-ins versus at home is holy or unholy. Sometimes things just change. Sometimes we get caught up in our traditions, but sometimes when we hang on to traditions, sometimes we even draw away from God. If we were still using a pipe organ and a choir, there's a good chance many of you wouldn't be here. That doesn't mean a pipe organ and a choir is not holy. It's just not on mission, right? It just doesn't reach the next generation when that's our call often we're called to make changes. Sometimes our traditions can be good, but then eventually can even draw us away from God. That's hard. If you were in the church in the 80s through the worship wars, right? Thought the holy wars between Islam and Christianity a thousand years ago were bad. You should have seen two generations fighting about how to worship God. It was ugly. I wasn't a Christian then, but anyhow, I've read books. So, Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You're running contrary to what God is saying. You're teaching people to actually reject what God has taught them to do. Jesus is telling them, listen, you're going the wrong way. Verse 10, 
For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that means given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his own father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, culturally completely irrelevant, we don't have this practice anymore. Okay, so what is it? So you guys all know the Ten Commandments, you've heard them. If you haven't heard them, the Fifth Commandment is honor your father and mother, right? Tells children, honor your parents, right? When you're in the home, that means honor might be obey. It means when you leave the home, when you, whether you still live there or not, when you're outside the home, don't bring shame on your family. Don't go do things that would dishonor your family. That means when you grow up, honor them. Live in the world in ways that would make much of your family, right? It doesn't say if you have good parents. It just says do it, right? Like honor your father and mother. It doesn't say ignore God. It says as a way of honoring God, honor your father and mother, right? That means when they get older and are in need of care, be there. I don't know what that looks like, but be there for them, right? Honor them. Honor is not the same as do everything they say to do when you're an adult and they're adults. It's not all. It's honor them. He says this, and he's speaking to grown adult people who are told to honor their parents, but you can get around that if you devote this amount of money to God, you can ignore your parents. Sounds like a great budget builder, not a great way to fulfill the Ten Commandments, right? Really risky when you start saying, hey, if you give money to the church, you can ignore God. That'd be pretty dangerous. And so he points out, listen, you have practices that are not biblical. You say things that are not in the Bible, and they actually are contrary to the Bible. And again, sometimes traditions can start out on track. Sometimes they drift off track. And when they drift off track, when they no longer line up, it's incumbent upon us to figure that out. How do we do that? Well, we allow that to be measured up by Jesus. Jesus is the truth of God in human flesh. So verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 14. Let me back out of that for a minute. Jesus presses in on some practices. Their practices aren't as simple as just washing their hands and trying to live separate lives, right? Let's put this in a modern day context. So with COVID, right, there's been a lot more in the way of hand washing or mask wearing, right? Most of us, not all of us, most of us that are wearing masks today are doing it to kind of submit to the authority that's been put in place above us. Most of us here are not championing as the fix masks, right? But out of a way to honor God, we obey the rules. That's like, you know, First Peter says that, Romans says that, that submit to the governing authorities, right? It's not that we're all in love with wearing masks or want to sell, smell our own breath, right? I mean, it's, it's not that. So, but it is a way that we do something so that when other people come in, they feel like, hey, we're living lives that glorify God and we care about them, right? That can be important. But it's not like we're trying to stay away from people. We're trying to protect or we're trying to obey. It's different. Kind of think of we're in the greater Long Beach area, right? This is one of the highest populations of the LGBT community. So churches all over the place are dividing on how do we live within the community and relate to people, right? Some may come to the conclusion that a lifestyle, well, okay, let me, let me just... So we would say that there are lifestyles that are not God's best for people, that are, that are sinful, that are run contrary to how God created us. 
Some churches would say those things are true, but then they kind of reject an entire people group. Some will welcome the people and kind of ignore the truth. You with me? Jesus is calling us to to live out the truth, but also love the people. That's what Judaism is doing. They're rejecting and washing away the people. They don't want to be around the people because of sinful practices. So they go out, and when they happen to pass by somebody who may not live like they live, when they go home, they try and shower that off of them. Jesus rather leans into the community, never compromising what is God's best, what is the law, what is true, never compromising that God created sex and gender. They're tied together at birth. They're both beautiful. He never confuses that. He never confuses sexuality. He never confuses any of that. But he never stops loving people caught in it. He doesn't go home and try and wash the unholiness off of them. Rather, Jesus brings holiness to people. Judaism wants to, is afraid, like it's gonna, their cooties gonna get on me. Couldn't think of a better theological term, so cooties is what we went with. <laughs> you're welcome. If you're live streaming, I'm sure there's other churches, but so <laughs> Jesus leans in. The people that are supposed to represent God pull away. That's where we can relate. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Again, we're not talking about the spread of COVID. We're talking about the spread of sin. Just because you rubbed elbows with somebody accidentally in a marketplace, you don't all of a sudden take on their sin. You don't have to run home and wash it off. For what it's worth, the, as we've been speaking this morning, the image I get in my mind is like someone who is sexually abused. I think of a woman who's been raped, and they're, they're, what do we always hear? They want to go home and shower. They want to wash off the filth of something, and they didn't cause that. But in my head, as I keep saying this, I keep seeing this image of just trying to wash off what happened but we're not trying to wash off an event. We're trying to wash off the world. We're trying to say, you're unholy, and I want you off of me. We're not comparing someone abusing someone to that. We're saying we act like that sometimes about people. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, parenthetically, Mark notes, thus he declared all foods clean. For all of you, that's why we eat bacon. Here's what he says. It's not what you take in that makes you sinful. It's what comes out. And his disciples are like, wait a minute, what? He's like, do you not understand either? You can't catch it. You don't catch their sin, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't breathe it in. You don't actually rub up against it and get it. He says it, what's, it's what comes out of your heart. You see, the gospel lives right in that space, that inside of our heart, you'll hear me say this quote a lot, 
John Calvin, kind of the father of Reformed theology, says this in his introduction to his kind of opus writing, the Institutes. He talks about that hearts, our hearts, the human heart, are factories for idols. We churn out idols. It's not his introduction. That's another quote. That comes, that, this comes later. When he talks about this, he says, we, our hearts are factories for idols. We churn out things to worship and sin all day long. We worship so many things. Our hearts are so broken that we see something. We want something. We take something. All of a sudden, we're worshiping. So we're walking away from everything else. We're, we're leaving God for that something. And as soon as we get over that one, it's like our heart creates a new one. But the gospel lives in that space. That's why Jesus became human, became flesh. It's not just so he could walk around and we could figure out what it means or so that he could teach and we could understand better. He could fulfill the promises of God. All that's true. But he did it to be sinless so that he could take our place and die our death and pay for our sin. But he does so not just so that our debt is paid, but as Jesus resurrects from the grave, he does so that we might also resurrect to new life, that in Christ, you and I become new, that we get made new, that we're not just forgiven versions of the broken, junk, trash, sin that I do, you do, but that we're made new, that we're given newness of life, that we can go live and be new. Jesus ascends back to heaven so he can pour out his spirit on us because the only thing better than having Jesus with us is having the very spirit of Jesus live in us, making us new, renewing us day by day. It's that. That's where the gospel lives, that when you begin to follow Jesus, when you ask for forgiveness of Jesus, when you're baptized into Christ, the promise of the Holy Spirit is that the spirit lives in you transforming you. We talk a lot about transformation here. That tra changes us. And it turns us into someone who now has holiness within us. Not perfect, right? We're not only Jesus. But now that lives inside of us and, and wants to renew us and transform us. And now, instead of worrying about catching something from the world, we can actually go give Jesus away. That we're empowered now to live in the world that's what Jesus does. He crossed over into a place primarily non-Jewish, and he didn't go run and hide somewhere. And because he didn't do that, the religious elite are trying to trap him with questions about his comfort level inside of a sinful world. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that cleansing takes place from the inside out. And it not only makes us less sinful or, or forgiven or empowered or transformed or filled with the Spirit, but it also makes us vessels of that which can give the gospel and the Spirit away. That we can take Jesus to others. That he can cleanse them. That he can purify them. We don't fear the world. We get to be messengers of the gospel. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I'm sure we've all found a few things we do in there, right? 
We all want to point to that one and go, I didn't do that one. <laughs> Crap, I did the other 11. You know, so that's kind of where we live, right? He says, when that comes out of you, right? We, we actually get angry and we say something. It's that thing we've been holding inside. That's that thing we already feel. We just don't want to admit to in front of people, right? He says, out of that comes sin, right? Another passage says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? It's, it's what's in here comes out. Verse 23, 23, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He's like, listen, it's not your next-door neighbor. It's not the student you sit next to class with. It's not your coworker. It's not the person that serves you food at your favorite restaurant that makes you sinful. It's your heart. Sin that lives inside of you. Here's a note for you. Our hearts are unclean. Jesus teaches that our, heart, that our sin resides in our heart, in the core of our being. Heart's a metaphor for that deepest inner part of who we are, right? That is what must be cleansed, not the things surrounding us in the world, but us. What a change when we stop worrying about, hey, let's cleanse, the, let's try and fix the world. Let's, let's vote in legislation that will solve all our problems. But rather, when we figure out that the sin is inside of us that needs to change. And that once we're changed, we can actually go out into the world and take that transformation into the world to give it away to others. We keep worrying about fixing everybody else. Start figuring out Jesus is trying to fix us. That the Holy Spirit is trying to transform us to make us usable in the rest of the world. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone know, to know, yet he could not be hidden. Have you ever wondered why you'll be reading along in a gospel or anywhere else? And it'll go from this passage to this passage. And you're like, what was the author thinking when we go from this story to this story, right? Have you ever wondered, why are they put together? I mean, because the option is, maybe they're just put in there randomly, but that doesn't sound like God, right? So you're thinking, why from this passage did the author mark in this case? Or, more importantly, the capital A, author, God, breathed out through his spirit through the pen of Mark. Why did he put it in this order? Let's go back, let's read the verse again. Verse 24. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and entered a house, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I'll trade you Syrophoenician for Gennesaret. Yeah? Right? Okay. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Tyre and Sidon, Gentile areas, a Syrophoenician woman, miles from being Jewish, right? She's not only Syrophoenician, but she's also female, which didn't work really well with Jewish men. And she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. See the parallel? A demonic spirit. What's it called? Unclean, unholy. See the pairing? As he's talking about washing hands and washing yourself and washing all that you, trying to wash away the unholiness. Here comes this woman who's a Gentile, strike one. She, strike two, and has a daughter with a demon. Like, that's it. No Jewish rabbi in his right mind is going to have this conversation. 
good chances the only reason she walks in is because he's in a Gentile home. If there's a fourth strike, there it is, right? And yet here's Jesus in the midst of this. Verse 27, and he, meaning Jesus, said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That is a very Jew-Gentile statement. Jews called Gentiles dogs. Treated them like Jews, uh, uh, Gentiles, especially like these Samaritans in, in the, the area, the Decapolis in this area, many of them had mixed with Jewish people and kind of you know, intermingled with them and then walked away from God. So they just saw them as dogs. They just treated them like that. And he says, listen, it isn't right to give what was meant for the Jews to Gentiles, what was meant for the family, for the children, giving it to dogs. Now, you may be listening to this and you're like, okay, Jesus just said that? Yeah, weird, right? Keep listening. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So good. Such a good response, right? It's like, hey, even, we even feed our dogs like little scraps. Like, can a Syrophoenician woman get a scrap, right? I mean, like, that's, that's kind of the thing, right? Oh, it's not right to give the food for the children to the dogs. She says, listen, even dogs get the scraps. All I want is a scrap. I just need a little, a little bit of you, Jesus. That'll heal my daughter. Verse 29, he said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Remember when we ask, why does the biblical author put particular passages in order? See, the very area that Jesus is being challenged on is that he isn't afraid to get into the mix with Gentile people, with Gentile women, with Gentile women who have demon-possessed daughters. Like, he's good. Because he's not worried about them making him unholy. He wants to make them holy. He wants to give away what he has to them to change them, to make them holy, to reconcile them to their God, their creator, their father. He's not worried about her junk messing him up. He wants to bring God to her. And so he's out in the culture. Jews are removed from it. So three things happen here. A Syrophoenician woman's daughter is healed. The next story, a deaf man is able to hear and speak correctly again. And then Jesus goes on and feeds 4,000 Gentile people. Like they didn't even eat with them. He feeds thousands. He does this in the context of this challenge where the Pharisees keep coming and like, how come your disciples don't wash their hands when they've been hanging out with people? Who knows what kind of people they might have seen in the world? They went to the marketplace. There had to be a Gentile in there somewhere. Why don't they come home and shower? He's like, listen, because what we have, we give away. Because the gospel goes out. And you can't mess up my gospel. You can't change my holiness. You can't overpower the Holy Spirit within me. My problem is my heart, not you. Not Jesus' heart, me. It's for you. I don't know whose phone that was, but I thought I'd point. Anyhow, so. <laughs> you don't mess up the gospel in us. See, we're messed up inside. That's why we need the gospel. 
But the gospel inside of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us, when I say the gospel, I mean what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. You can't overthrow it. You can't overcome that. You can't pollute that. We get in the way. Our hearts get in the way. But not hanging out with somebody else. Now, there's boundaries sometimes for people. I want to go through two notes as we close. So influences, outside versus inside. The world and those that don't follow Jesus are not the cause of our sin. Our sinfulness lives inside of us in our hearts that need gospel transformation. We are the problem, not the rest of the world. See, when we're changed, we can influence the world. We can give it away. Right? That, that overflow, that the spirit overflowing out of us. What Jesus has done is good enough for everybody. We can be transformed and give it away. And that doesn't mean, when I say transformed, I mean empowered by, by God, by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. Well, the spirit lives inside of us. I don't mean perfect. If we're waiting on perfect, we're never going to get there. If you're waiting on perfect from me, stop waiting. If you're waiting from perfect from you, so you can be that perfect messenger, stop waiting. That's not going to happen. But when Jesus lives in us, we get to take him to the world. Probably more accurately, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we get to introduce the world to Jesus. We don't have to worry about them getting on us. What we're doing is giving away what we have to them. Now, I want to throw out this one, one caution. So here it is, one caution about this. Our sinful hearts also need to be guarded from opportunity. Like an alcoholic who avoids bars, we need to guard what influences we allow to tempt us. Don't let this be an excuse. When an alcoholic avoids bars, it typically is early on in sobriety. So if you're in a struggling area, yes, there's a season to separate from that. Maybe that season is pornography. I don't think a guy who goes to strip clubs, comes to faith, ever goes back to the strip clubs. Fair? <laughs> Women are like, yes, yeah, all right, good. <laughs> Glad we agree. The alcoholic, maybe. Maybe when they get sober, maybe they go, maybe, I don't know for what reason, maybe. There's some things yes, there's some things no. Maybe they never do. But sometimes God sends us back into the world we're from, the world we live in, to reach them with the gospel. But it's obvious that you don't necessarily do that on day one of sobriety. So there's, there's wisdom in the Bible as well. But it's not because we don't want to go there because they're going to defile us. It's because the sin in our heart is still present and we're fearful of our failure in that setting. It's different than thinking the world around us defiles us. Whether that be a people group whether that be a sexual orientation or a gender identity, whether that be a political group, a political party, whether that be an ethnicity, a skin color, a language, whether it be any of those things that we, that we would separate ourselves for, the gospel says no. The gospel says the gospel is for everyone. Jesus says that this message is for everyone. And the Bible teaches us that greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. See, we go to the world because we have something to give them. We don't fear the world, fearing we're going to catch what they have. So we already got it. Sin already lives in our hearts. But thanks be to Jesus, he has overcome sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have overcome the world. Jesus, you have overcome my sin. I haven't. You have. You have had victory. In the places where I've had victory, it's because of you. In the places I still fail, it's because of me. 
because you have had victory. And your spirit lives in me to transform me. It lives in us to transform us. Jesus, you're enough. The world doesn't defile us. Our sin does. Help us to love the world we live in. Not love their sin, not love what's wrong, but love the people that live within it. Because before you transformed every one of our lives, we were a part of the problem, and oftentimes still can be. But you have given us your spirit that we might live here on mission for you. You don't seek to take us out of the world. You seek to leave us here in this crazy world we live in so that we can tell others about you. Help us to live transformed lives in the world we're in so that others may see you. We'll never legislate holiness. We'll never vote in a savior. But we can love our neighbors so that they can see you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.